that the question, what kind of cities do we want to live in? How do we want our cities to be? Cannot be divorced from the question of what kind of people we want to be. What kind of humanity we wish to create amongst ourselves and how we want to create it. And it is that mutual constitution of the city and who we are and what we are that is something which is, I think, again, very important to reflect upon. This is The City, an hour dedicated to a critical discussion of urban issues. And welcome to the program here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca. We're here for our Fun Drive special, Fun Drive 2014. Give us a call at 604-822-8648 on the program. We're going back and looking at uh, the highlights from the last year of critical urban discussions here on the program. Stay with us. We've got some great stuff coming on uh, on the program uh, with a bit of music. Again, that number, 604-822-8648. Thinking back on why independent community and uh, campus programming matters, give us a call, 604 822 8648. I'm Eddie Longhurst. This is an hour dedicated to critical urban discussions here on CITR 101.9 FM based out of the University of British Columbia here in Vancouver, Canada. Give us a call.
And this is the city here on CITR 101.9 FM. We've got Sharon Jones in the background. This is your opportunity to show you, to show us, uh, in fact, um, how much community and campus radio means to you. Independent radio, um, it's vital and uh, it's an important uh, to have independent, alternative, non-corporate uh, programming um, that's accessible um, and that speaks to a diversity of uh, interests and um, often the views that you don't necessarily hear um, from mainstream sources. So again, that number, 604-822-8648, 604-822-8648. This is CITR 101.9 FM. This is a special edition of the city, an hour dedicated to critical urban discussions. We've got lots to come on the program, uh, but please uh, think about what, what independent radio, what independent media means to you. Um, think about how much you might spend on your cell phone, on your internet, on conventional sources of media. Um, if you if you pay for a newspaper, um, if you pay for any type of online publication, um, this is also a service that I think you should support. So again, that number, 604-822-8648. Uh, take a minute to think about what it takes um, to produce independent, uh, volunteer-produced uh, radio and, uh, and media, um, lots of programming. Um, I come in here every week, I put together a program, um, but what's really important is the station that provides that access, and that's CITR, and CITR is crucially important um, to having content like this, to having the city. Hopefully over the, over the last year um, or longer, uh, you've enjoyed um, having those alternative perspectives, those um, different uh, critical analyses that you may not hear on mainstream outlets, or they frankly don't give the time uh, for those different perspectives and those interviews um, with people that you may not hear um, on different sources. So again, give us a call, 604-822-8648. Uh, support uh, public affairs program that is is based in, uh, in the community, that reaches out to the community, that's engaged uh, in the community, something that, again, um, I can't stress it enough, you may not hear other places, and you likely don't in the, in the way that we do it. Um, so we're going to now go to a clip from uh, Nicholas Lynch, and he is uh, uh, w- was formerly at um, the UBC uh, Geography Department. He is uh, co-author on a report uh, uh, called Divisions and Disparities in Lotusland Socio-Spatial Incompolarization in Greater Vancouver. And this is a study looking at the transformation of the region um, by income and uh, the, the declining middle class in the region from the period 1970 to 2005. And we're going to go to that short clip. And over the course of the hour, we're going to give you a bit of a, a sample um, highlighting some of the interviews and the discussions that we've had that touch on a number of issues. So um, income and, and um, the city, the region, um, things like inequality, uh, things like labor and jobs, and the importance of um, you know a, a vibrant economy, but also one that is is uh, equal and provides living wage jobs—a focus that has been recurring uh, over the last year. Um, but also putting a, a gender or a feminist lens on a number of different um, processes um, or conditions that we see in the city, and uh, things like policy and how we might think about policy. And, and put an equity lens on things like urban policy and urban planning. But also then extending, uh, as we talk uh, here later in the program, um, going beyond Vancouver and hearing from um, people that are, are watching uh, social movements unfold in places like Brazil. So those are the, some of the discussions that we've had over the course of the year. I hope you'll join me in supporting CITR 101.9 FM by, by giving us a call, showing us that this is a service that matters to you. 604-822-8648. 
you're thinking, well, I, I mean, somebody else is going to pitch in, but we're trying to raise $35,000. And that's going to help with our move to the new student union building here on the University of British Columbia campus. Um, it's not cheap to move a, a, a radio station, uh, nonetheless your own home, but a radio station into a new facility. And that's going to help pay for those costs um, as we move into a new home, um, which uh, will be quite fantastic. But we need your support to help us do that. The other thing is increasingly we have to we have to ask you to help support this programming and this station because uh, operations, um, because new equipment, these things are not cheap. Um, and we ask you to do this once a year. So give us a call, 604-822-8648. We've got Nick Lynch coming up talking about divisions and disparities in Lotus Land. And this is a conversation going back to April of 2013. This is The City on CATR. And in fact, back in 2003, 2004, uh, there was uh, David Olchansky, who's a, so, so, a social worker, sociologist and sort of general urban specialist in Toronto, was given some money uh, by, the, uh, by the Canadian government to conduct some research on, as well as, uh, you know, some, some non-charity, or sorry, non-profit or charitable organizations Toronto put money in to, to discover what was happening in Toronto in terms of this concept of polarization and inequality. Uh, he came out with a, a quite an amazing story, narrative, um, and research about Toronto showing three distinct cities in Toronto. Uh, since that report, which was extremely popular, uh, you know, even got press with the with the mayor at the time, uh, Miller, um, uh, they they spun that into questions of what's happening in the other Canadian CMAs, other Canadian major major Canadian cities. And so we were lucky enough to get funded for some research here in Vancouver to ask the same question: What's happening with polarization and income change in Vancouver? Um, so, so that was uh, that's really what we've what we've done here is done that research. So let's let's go into some of those findings. Um, the report is titled uh, "Divisions and Disparities in Lotus Land." Um, what are those divisions and disparities, and what are some of the major findings coming out of the report? Yeah, well, l- let me first say that uh, that you know cities ha- have always been divided. They've always been, um, uh, in some ways, divided. And and for the longest time, urban scholars have have focused on you know asking the question how how have race, class, religion, um, how are, how have these things uh, really impacted um, the f- morphology and the sociology of the city. Uh, we've we've been we've been interested here in asking the question, of course, um, what kind of new what kind of new configurations are we seeing in Vancouver, and uh, and really the, what we're finding and what we've what we sort of found um, in in our research is that Vancouver is is is, is gone from primarily a middle class city in 1970 uh, to a to a, well, what was firmly a middle class city to a highly um, divided city. Uh, speci- specifically by income, by socioeconomic income sta- status, uh, and and this means that of course that we're we're seeing uh, a polarization, if you will, so um, a polarization of neighbor at the neighborhood level um, of groups growing in the higher income level and and groups growing at the lower income level, and an, a, almost an evisceration of the middle class, slow evisceration. It's not complete, uh, it's not even, uh, but it's but it's certainly happening. And so, uh, like the Toronto case study, we we sort of focus on on asking the question: Do we have three cities in, in Vancouver? And and it's not the same situation as in Toronto. The the, the divisions and the, essentially the inequality and the polarization in Toronto is much worse. Uh, but but it's not to say that. Uh, but that's to say that you know Vancouver actually we're seeing we're seeing a case of 
of, uh, of quite, a, quite an amazing um, rate of polarization and inequality as well. When you talk about the three cities, um, you create, you sort of separate um, some categories based on income and create um, a middle class. And can you talk about the, the methodology or, or how you went about um, creating these categories to actually say that, oh, the middle class yeah. is is disappearing within the city and that it is more polarized. Yeah, so methodologically, of course, when, when, you, when you're studying um, socioeconomic status, uh, you have to make categories and you have to, you have to sort of think about and, and de- de- define categories in order to show, you know, uh, income change and difference over time. One of the things that we did was, and, and, and I have to say that, you know, defining the middle class becomes kind of arbitrary in a way. Uh, you certainly have to follow through when you make your category. You have to follow through in all forms of statistical analysis with that same category. The the what we did is we we defined the middle class by uh, a, specifically a range, right? So if the average we used the average or the median income in Vancouver, and we said okay, any any group that um, that is above fifteen percent of that average income, if they're above fifteen percent above, those those we're going to categorize as higher income groups. Anybody below the 15% uh, median income, so median income and 15% below, we we categorize as sort of lower uh, income. And so middle income becomes a range in that 15 plus or minus. Now, of course, you can can change uh, your metric. You can say uh, 20% or et cetera. So in Toronto, they used a 20% metric. In in Vancouver, we used a 15% metric um, to to show income change. Uh, now, of course, as I said, these categories, they're, they're constructed, right? They're not natural. And so um, we, have to, we have to acknowledge those categories and follow through with that. Uh, so, it, it, you know, for, for, our, for our purpose, that 15% above, above and below really worked for defining the middle class in our research. Um, and, uh, and, and clearly what we see is, is even if you do tra- change that number to 20% or uh, you still see essentially a hollowing out of the middle of the middle income groups, and that means that uh, we're we're having a, a good number of people in Vancouver that are going from middle income to upper income, and more importantly, and a good number of people going from what they what used to be middle income to lower income. Right, so we're seeing an expansion of those two groups in both poles. So, what does that geography then look like if you are seeing the hollowing out of mm-hmm. of uh, middle class households yeah. and um, growing numbers of households at the bottom. Uh, how does that play out within the city and, and I guess, secondly, um, uh, across the region? Yeah. So uh, one, of the, one of the really interesting findings of our research um, is that we, we're starting to see a, a sort of a new social, socioeconomic morphology of the city. And so, you know, we, we, we do several different things. The first one we do is, first thing we do is we take a snapshot of 1970 and we compare that snapshot to 2005 we also do a sort of a, a 1970-2005 overlay, now change map. So the first one is, is the snapshot. 1970, um, we see a sort of a post, uh, post-war, um, you know, industrial uh, staple society in Vancouver primarily, a city defined by, um, by middle-class groups in the suburbs. You know, the classic suburban, Canadian suburban dream is is alive and well in 1970 Vancouver. We have the downtown east side, which is a which is a pretty common in, the, in the, that period of time where you have uh, extremely low income group uh, close to the downtown, close to the inner city and the CBD. Part of that is an, is, is an historical response to uh, work in the city. 
Um, uh, you know, it's pretty common for low-income groups to settle near, uh, you know, industries where they can get close access to. Um, so really sort of a concentric, the sort of the concentric rings model of, of post-industrial, or of the industrial city was quite clear in Vancouver. You, you fast forward to 2005, and what you see is a, is a dramatic transformation of that morphology. And so from, from 1970 we, to 2005, we have this sort of post-industrial city. And, and in fact, not just post-industrial. Um, and I should qualify post-industrial, the movement of industry to uh, a non-industry, and in this case a creative um, ser- service-based economy. But also we have a por- por- post-corporate society where a lot of corporate headquarters who may have you know, sort of cited in Vancouver primarily f- for the um, staple or uh, industries and t- timber and all this stuff, stuff, but also a, a post-staple city, right? So, so no longer are is timber coming into Vancouver to supply um, as a, as part of a movement network. So, 2005, that transformation means a, a whole lot for for how, how and where people live. So, in 2005, middle-income groups have been uh, primarily squeezed out. Lower-income groups have have expanded. The downtown east side has pretty much stayed low-income for the most part, but it's changing. Uh, but lower income groups uh, are also cited in neighborhoods along the the, uh, the SkyTrain line into the, along the Kingsway corridor. Lower income groups are, are and neighborhoods are starting to pop up in suburbs, right? So, and this this suburban issue is is quite an important one. We've we've talked to, geographers have been talking about the suburban suburbanization of, or the, sorry, the the uh, impoverza- impoverization of suburbia for for a while in the United States. Um, there's been some research focused on Canada asking the same question. And what this shows us is that lower-income neighborhoods are starting to pop up in, in, in what were highly middle-class suburbs. And that was Nick Lynch. Uh, and that was going back to uh, April uh, 2013, uh, or April, um, yeah, April 2013, uh, interview with uh, Nicholas Lynch, and he is an urban social geographer and is co-author of a report, Divisions and Disparities, Disparities in Lotus Land, the, so, the Socio-Spatial um, Income Polarization in Greater Vancouver, 1970 to 2005. And uh, these are some of the discussions that you can find here on the program, 5 to 6 p.m. Tuesdays here live on CITR, and uh, also syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, and that's on Fridays, also available as a podcast at thecityfm.org. Also off the CITR.ca website, you can find um, an archive not only of this program, but every program uh, broadcast on CITR. And that's, I think, one of the really uh, important points about, um, about media these days is um, a lot of the ways that, um, that uh, CITR, other outlets provide media is through things like podcasts, uh, is through online streaming. And I think an important point is these things are not free. Uh, they don't, the, the station doesn't just suddenly come across uh, these technologies. These have to be purchased, they have to be upgraded, um, and they have to be um, maintained and well-kept. And uh, this requires wonderful uh, technicians to, um, to provide their time, uh, their work here at the station, um, the fantastic work they do. Uh, here, uh, students, professionals, um, everyone. This is not. Uh, this is not free, and the technology is not free either. Um, so I think it's important to remember 
while we may be a, a, a community radio station, um, these very things uh, don't come cheaply, and we don't um, have some special deal. So uh, these are things that, as we move into the new building, uh, we're going to need to invest uh, to improve um, the conditions at that station and to cover some of the basic moving costs and expenses associated with that. So again, give us a call, 604-822-8648. I'm going to give you a sense of uh, the levels um, that you can support CITR at um, and some of the incentives or some of the, the swag that uh, might come your way if, if you give us a pledge. Again, 604-822-8648. So again, if you're interested in uh, a tax receipt, uh, you can receive that and you can donate either um, by giving us a call, 604-822-8648, um, or also donating online, citr.ca slash donate. Um, and if you donate online, you don't have the option uh, to receive swag um, based on your pledge. Um, but if you do give us a call, here's uh, here's some of the stuff that you can get. So for $30, you get a Friends of CITR card. Uh, this is um, really great for uh, getting discounts at local businesses, restaurants, cafes around town. Uh, that's for only a $30 uh, pledge. And if you think about that, um, there are a good number of businesses, uh, local businesses in the community that are part of this program. Um, and I would say you know, within a month, you could easily save uh, $30 in, in savings by using that, uh, that CITR Friends card. So again, give us a call. If that's something uh, that, that interests you, um, I use mine quite a bit. Give us a call, 604-822-8648. At the $60 level, a Friends of CITR card and a Get Moving mug. So you can check all of this out at citr.ca. Uh, we've got, uh, we should, or uh, on the website, you can see all the different uh, the CITR swag that you can get for uh, making a pledge and it's a pretty um, awesome mug it's using an old school CITR logo Um, it's quite fantastic Uh, something that I would say I'd want to wake up to and have a cup of coffee in my CITR mug while listening to CITR so give us a call 604-822-8648 at the 101.9 dollar level a friends of CITR card and a get moving mug plus rad sock Rad Socks. And so uh, just to give you a bit of history, uh, CATR started as the Radio Society or uh, known as Rad Socks. So we've got some CITR, um, uh, some CITR socks that are also quite fantastic. Um, and that's again at the $101.9 level. At the $175 level of Friends of CITR card, a Get Moving mug, Rad Sock, Rad Socks, and a CITR hoodie. And uh, the, the hoodies just came in. Uh, they are also fantastic. Um, something I think you'd want to add to your wardrobe. Um, comfortable, um, but also shows how much you care about alternative, independent, um, non-corporate, um, and eclectic um, programming that is, that is rooted in the community, um, that seeks out different viewpoints, uh, different analyses, um, and different music. That's something that uh, we hope to showcase throughout the programming here on CATR. Um, and you can just look at the program list and see the diversity of music um, that, that is offered um, through, uh, through the FM, through 101.9 FM, or through CATR.ca, or available through podcast. Again, all of these programs are available as podcast, um, and you can have them downloaded automatically. These services... Um, you know, they're not free, as I mentioned, and we're asking you to give back. Say, you know what? I, I listen, I enjoy. I'm going to give back a bit, and I'm going to say I support what you guys are doing. I want to help make it happen, and I want to continue another great year um, and help make that possible of good, independent, solid programming. So give us a call, 604 604- 
822-8648. This is the City and Hour dedicated to critical urban discussions. We're going to go now to um, a talk with um, uh, with Wayne Luchuk, and he is a professor at McMaster University, and he's talking again about another important um, study looking at um, uh, looking at uh, polarization, job polarization, um, uh, the sort of precarious nature of employment in the Toronto region. But again, this speaks more broadly to what's happening in cities, what's going on, and what are some of the the effects that this is happen- having on people's lives. So really uh, important perspectives. This is something that, you know, uh, doesn't really get a lot of airtime on even places like CBC um, and certainly um, would only get a bit of a snippet on on uh, more mainstream stations. So this is uh, pretty important content and we're going to have a listen. Um, again, this is uh, Wayne Luchuk talking about a recent report. Let's jump into some of those findings um, and, and and relate this specifically to Toronto. I know there's a bit of a geography to this, and some regions um, have higher percentages of precarious employment. But uh, can you uh, run us through a number of the findings from this project? Well, I think one of the one of the key findings is that when we asked people, um, "Do you have a, a full time job that uh, pays you some benefits, something beyond a wage, so maybe a bit of a pension?" or some health benefits, uh, and that you expect to have that job in a year. Uh, only half of our, our sample, so it goes from Hamilton to Toronto, that whole area, and these are people ages 25 to 65, so prime sort of earning years, only half said they had that kind of a job. The other half had something else. Uh, some of them were in uh, this, what we call precarious forms of employment. Uh, some of them were in, in permanent part-time employment. Uh, and, and about 20% of them were in jobs that might have been full-time, but they didn't know whether they're going to have those jobs in a year or they were jobs that didn't provide them a pension or any, any kind of benefits. Uh, and these are all markers of uh, jobs that you know, really don't have a, uh, a long-term uh, future uh, in them. And I think that was, a bit, that was quite a surprise, how few people have those old kind of traditional jobs. Think of it as sort of the Ford General Motors uh, kind of job, the IBM jobs, that once you had them, you had them for life. People now are in a much more flexible uh, situation. The other, I think, really key finding that we have found is how this is affecting uh, household well-being uh, and community participation. Uh, in terms of household well-being, this sort of insecurity of employment, so you don't know what your paycheck's going to be in a month, you don't know if you're going to have a job in a month, you don't know what your work schedule is going to be. Um, you don't have any buffers against an unexpected health outcome or you know, if your kids get your teeth knocked out or if they want to go to camp, things like that. All this uncertainty is creating stresses in households. Um, and uh, certainly one of the responses that we found was that people are delaying forming households. So they're getting married later. Uh, they're delaying decisions to have children. Because you know, a lot of people are telling us, look, it, I... I don't know what my income is going to be in six months. How can I plan to have ch- kids now? Because, you know, they're a long-term commitment. So all those kind of effects uh, came out. The other thing that we found, um, and this was complex, was how this is affecting how people engage in their community. On the one hand, having this kind of flexible, insecure, precarious employment does open up some opportunities for some people to be more engaged in their communities. And this is particularly women who are telling us, um, 
you know, look, I'm not willing to commit to a full-time permanent job because I want to become more engaged in my school, in my community, etc. Uh, but for other people, this kind of employment was really a barrier. Uh, and they were telling us, look, I, I can't even think about becoming engaged in my community because I'm waiting for the temp agency to call me when I might have work. Or I mean, how can I commit to coaching my kids' ball team on Wednesday night when I don't know my work schedule from week to week? Uh, or... Uh, I can't really volunteer for a place because I can't afford to give my time away for free. I'm always out there hustling, looking for a job, uh, increasing my training uh, to make me more employable, things like that. So in terms of the community part, there was, a, there was a real mix between people who could be more engaged, but then a large number of people who were actually less engaged in their community. And it's those kind of social effects that we're most interested in looking at in, in terms of uh, the long-term future of the project. Mm-hmm. Are there racial and gender dimensions uh, to the findings? Well, I mean, it's certainly true that um, uh, immigrants, people of, of, of color, uh, racial minorities, uh, their their main access to the labor market has always been through this kind of precarious employment. And that is true also, uh, has also been true for women. Uh, they've long uh, not had access to the kind of privileged jobs that white men had of access to. But I think what was surprising in the study is to what extent this new form of employment is reaching into sectors of our society which have formerly been immune from this kind of employment. So the university educated, uh, the uh, uh, white-collar employment, high-tech employment, the, the, the media, the, 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 the arts, these are all areas where maybe in the past there was less of this kind of employment, and now there's been sort of a, a harmonization so there really are not big differences in terms of the insecurity of employment between uh, men and women, uh, between whites and, and, and racialized minorities. There are certainly still big differences in terms of pay rates and benefits. So women and racialized minorities are still massively disadvantaged. But this kind of insecurity is now pretty widespread throughout our, our labor market. Hmm. Also, are there are there um, disadvantages to being young um, in terms of accessing stable and, and permanent employment? Yeah, the the, uh, the study itself, we, we we only collected data for people age 25 and up, and in part that's because we've known we've always known that young people, when they first come into the labor market, they tend to access the labor market through less secure employment. They shop around. Then maybe after three or four years, they latch on to a, a good job, a permanent job, um, and, they, and they traditionally they stuck with that for a, a long time. I think what we, what we know from uh, other research is that that period of sort of, if you might put it, shopping around uh, is getting longer and longer. And so some people are still in that kind of precarious situation when they're in their 30s, uh, and some people are never going to escape that. So if you're working uh, in the media, for instance, you're almost certainly going to be on some kind of uh, a contract for most of your working life. So I think the real implications for young people uh, are that this kind of insecurity may be a permanent feature of their lives. They may never get onto that permanent job. The other thing I think that we know from uh, other research is that if you do get a permanent job, the, the, the period in which you have that job is getting shorter and shorter. So people are now are finding themselves in their, in their late 40s suddenly being made redundant um, and being pushed back into the labor market, which is increasingly insecure. So that idea of a lifetime job with one employer, is, I think, is becoming a, a myth for a lot of people.
And again, that was Wayne Luchuk, and he's a professor at McMaster University. And again, uh, talking uh, about um, labor market uh, changes and uh, the uh, this is, an, again, in the Toronto uh, regional context, um, but have broader significance um, for some of the labor market or urban regional transformations that we're seeing um, not only in Canada, not only in the Toronto region, um, but certainly across cities um, uh, everywhere, um, certainly in, in the U.S., um, these types of things. And this is a conversation um, that I had with uh, Mark Dussard um, at the University of Chicago, um, uh, uh, now I'm forgetting uh, where he's at, sorry, University of Illinois, um, and he was also talking about um, some work that he did around um, degraded work, and particularly around um, construction work, and um, another, uh, a number rather, of uh, locally based or locally um, dependent industries. So they were sort of not affected by um, globalization because they were supermarkets serving uh, local neighborhoods and how work uh, increasingly in the the post-industrial city is uh, is degraded in certain ways. We're going to go now to a conversation with... um, uh, with an anthropologist um, from um, uh, from Brazil, and uh, she's going to be talking about the social movements um, that are uh, taking place. And again, this is going back uh, to 2013. Um, but she's talking again about social movements, uh, the role that they're playing in in Brazil, specifically um, in her context of, of Rio. Um, and this is, again, Professor Cecilia Mayo from the Federal University of Rio de Janeiro. Um, and she's talking about things like uh, the right to the city, about the protests that sprung up around mobility uh, for, for uh, marginalized, low-income people, um, and the importance of, of public transit and fees that aren't too high that prohibit mobility, and deteriorating quality of life, and the importance of, of taking a stand for these things. Again, this is uh, Professor uh, Cecilia Mayo. Talk about that resistance, which um, maybe as as news reports um, coming across in North America have characterized uh, the movements arising out of uh, mm-hmm. the the free fair movement, um, but around larger questions of quality of life in um, Brazil's cities. Can you yeah. talk about, um, from your perspective, what you're seeing in places like Rio and? really what this movement um, is about? Yeah. Uh, it's about many, many issues. I think um, since uh, for we, we observe in Brazil like this huge economic growth, which is not, um, which is not, uh, it's, on, it's, it's, it's an economic growth that has not, re- it's not reaching everyone. So it's not well shared mm-hmm. amongst the population and and so what we observe is the pattern of of an unequal uh, distribution of wealth is maintained for you to have an idea the last uh, ten years the gross national product or the gross the, the gross domestic product uh, per capita is five times bigger than it used to be, but the minimum wages are thirty percent lower. So we we see a, a, a bo- economic boom in in the country, but most people, especially those who live in the cities, are not. Uh, they do not really have a better life, in the sense that most of 
this bone is called is being um, is being related to changing the the infrastructure of the cities. So with this the the World Cup and the Olympic Games, there is a huge change in the dynamics. For instance, of uh, of land owning and uh, property owning the cities. So it's much the speculation is, is really amazing, it's like out of control. And people that, for instance, pay a, um, a rent, now they cannot afford. They have to change for for areas far from the center in order to be able to live. Because in Brazil, it's different from the North, from North America because we the closer you live from in the center, the better you live. Mm-hmm. And like the sub, what we call suburbs are like peripheral areas that no one wants to to go to. Mm-hmm. So people are being, uh, let's say, expelled from the center of the cities, and are obliged to live in the suburbs with lower infrastructure and high cost of transportation. So, so this process was going on for for some years, uh, and the cost for transport. Some transportation are very very high. Some people prefer to sleep in work uh, because they cannot afford going and coming back. For you to have an idea, downtown Rio, there are people that sleep on the streets not because they don't have a home, but because it's so so expensive to go home every night. This is the city here on CATR 101.9 FM. Give us a call, 604-822-8648. Again, 604-822-8648. This is the Fun Drive special here on the city, an hour dedicated to critical urban discussions. We're giving you a bit of a, some highlights from the last year um, and, and really asking you to support community, independent, alternative programming that matters to you. And uh, give us a call, 604-822-8648. We're trying to raise $35,000 and uh, help us get over the $17,000 mark. Uh, We're just under uh, $16,967. Get us over. Get us to $17,000. Again, 604-822-8648. This is CATR 101.9 FM. This is the city. I'm Andy Longhurst. We've got more coming your way, but you're going to have to give us a call. Give us a ring, 604-822-8648.
So we're going to continue with some more highlights from the last year. We're going to a documentary uh, that uh, produced on the program here on the city on uh, upzoning and um, towers and uh, the politics around development in the Grandview Woodland neighborhood in East Vancouver and some of the uh, giving you a sense of some of the fights that um, are are brewing uh, in many ways across the city and uh, giving you a bit of a a, a local case study around um, those politics and a bit of a, a, a taste of um, you know, what's going on in neighborhoods and what are the concerns um, and and giving you a sense of different voices from the community and where they're coming from. So we're going to go to that just in a minute. Um, but again, give us a call, 604-822-8648. Um, think about the importance of, of uh, campus and community radio, the importance of CATR. Um, maybe you only tune in for one program or you tune, tune in once a week. Um, that's still something that that uh, you're you're enjoying, um, at least hopefully you're enjoying it. Um, but it's something that you have come to rely on, something that's part of your life. And I think that's a time to reflect on what it takes, um, and and you know what would happen if something like CITR didn't exist. Um, so again, support us, help us make the move into our new uh, home and radio station um, just across um, the way here on the University of British Columbia campus. Uh, we're going to be moving in in the next uh, in the next few months. Um, but this comes with expenses for um, you know engineering, design, moving costs. Um, this doesn't come free, and this is something that we're raising money this year um, during our annual fund drive uh, to uh, to uh, be able to do to continue to bring you that alternative alternative programming, um, the music that you have uh, come to rely on, come to enjoy, that you really um, are not going to find anywhere else, quite frankly, and also the public affairs and the spoken word programming. Um, that is alternative. It is critical. Um, it does give you those perspectives that are sort of off off the beaten path, so to speak, for other uh, media outlets, other corporate media outlets that don't give you this, um, and they're not interested in, in providing this type of commentary. So again, give us a call, 604-822-8648, 604-822-8648. Uh, and I just want to say media uh, is is really vital um, and the consolidation of media in Canada is is alarming. And I think this is, again, reason to support independent, non-profit, um, non-corporate outlets that provide a diversity of programming and are committed to it. And more than that, um, train people in doing that, in community access, um, in giving people um, an opportunity to both learn skills around broadcasting um, and also be able to help tell stories about what's going on in their neighborhoods and in their communities. This is now going to uh, uh, giving you a sample from a Grandview Woodland um, radio documentary called Zoned Out, Towers Upzoning and the Future of Grandview Woodland. And this is just a sample of some of the comment, uh, some of the documentaries, some of the commentaries, some of the perspectives you're going to find on this program. In 
In July 2011, in July 2011, Vancouver City Council voted to direct city staff to begin the community planning process for the Grandview Woodland neighborhood in the heart of East Vancouver. The neighborhood contains a substantial amount of First Nations housing, cooperatives, public housing, and market rentals. The neighborhood is also known for large historic homes. Over the past two years, planning staff have engaged with residents on transportation, arts and culture, and housing. In June, the City of Vancouver presented the draft plan back to the community, and to the surprise of many, the plan proposes approximately 10 towers ranging from 22 to 36 stories, and the upzoning of substantial portions of the neighborhood, which are currently low-rise rental apartment buildings, duplexes, and single-family homes, many of them with multiple rental suites. Residents and neighborhood leaders are shocked, particularly because community members were not consulted on the proposed land use directions. This is Jack King. He's the president of the Grandview Woodland Area Council, and uh, here are his thoughts. The amount of upzoning that's proposed covers an enormous part of Grandview, none of which was in any of the public discussions. So it's um, the first view of it is, is simply one of shock. I was actually blown away when I saw it. I thought, whoa, what's this? Natty Heron is a Grandview Woodland resident, also formerly on the Grandview Woodland Area Council. She provided her feedback and comments on the draft plan. I know that we had mentioned to talk about artist quarters, um, interactive uh, workspaces, living spaces, but certainly not those many towers. So if the proposed clustering of towers did not emerge out of community consultation at the housing workshop, then where did they come from? My theory is it would be the TransLink plan, the Greater Vancouver TransLink plan for density, because I believe that's all synced to the commercial drive, Broadway SkyTrain station. I spoke with Jeff Busby, a senior transportation planner at TransLink, the regional transportation authority. I would say our input is mostly in the form of general guidance. So we've published transit-oriented community design guidelines. TransLink doesn't have a position on the specifics in this plan. So if TransLink doesn't have an opinion, what does the City of Vancouver have to say? The City's refusal to provide comment on the community planning process underway when residents feel like their views have not been properly represented is especially bizarre at a time when the mayor's office has launched an engaged city task force to address the lack of civic engagement in the city and frustration with public consultation exercises. We are going to hear next from engaged city task force member Lindsay Popes. As a resident, when I think of being engaged in the public consultation process, I instantly feel distrust. I have a general sense that the way to engage is somehow obscured. I don't necessarily feel that the process is obvious and I'm automatically defensive. Like, I automatically feel like I will be engaged in some sort of fight. And if neighborhood residents are gearing up for a fight, is it simply because they are looking for a fight with the city? Or is it because they feel that the very fabric of their East Vancouver neighborhood is being threatened by the proposed land use changes of extensive upzonings throughout the neighborhood? Housing is viewed uh, purely as an asset and a commodity, and it's not viewed as a place where people live, a place where people build a community. Robin is a renter on East First Avenue. I personally have been renovated and then witnessed that house be renovated and go back on the market for more than double what the rent was before. I don't feel like that house even needed to be renovated. 
Um, and then until we can stop looking at housing purely as development contracts that will be awarded uh, with this plan and ways to make money, um, we're going to be stuck with this problem. In a neighborhood where 66% of dwellings are rented, compared to 52% within the city as a whole, there are important questions about the possible political and social shifts in the neighborhood if existing housing stock is demolished to make way for new and more expensive rental apartments and condominiums and the higher income households that can afford this new housing, a process defined by urban scholars and activists as gentrification. How does widespread condominium development and a culture of property ownership affect a neighborhood and a city more broadly? I asked Leslie Kern. She is assistant professor of gender studies at Mount Allison University and author of Sex and the Revitalized City, Gender, Condominium Development, and Urban Citizenship. A city that's encouraging this sense of pure self-sufficiency, protect your own investment, take care of yourself, protect your own living space, be secure, and so on, then... Is there any incentive to argue for those things collectively? While the city has put aside the proposal for 22 to 36-story towers for the time being, this has done little to remedy the distrust and anger that many residents expressed at a recent public forum. Hundreds of us have participated in the community planning process in good faith over the last year. A very aggressive set of proposals that you've put out. And so naturally, it's generating a lot of hostility and anger. Mm -hmm. This dynamic does not make for good planning. It does not make for good neighborliness. For Groundwire, I'm Andy Longhurst at CITR in Vancouver. And this is The City, and we're coming uh, to the close of the hour. We've got Flex Your Head coming up next. But this is the 2014 CITR Fund Drive, and we're asking you to think about uh, what CITR means to you and ask you to support this uh, this programming. I want to thank, thank Celine uh, for giving us a call. Thanks, Celine. Um, really appreciate um, your support of CITR. And uh, ask others. Uh, give us a call, 604-822-8648. We're, we're mere dollars um, below uh, the $17,000 mark. Um, six, we're at $16,997.70. Help us get over that mark. Get us over. It doesn't take a lot. So give us a call. What, whatever you feel comfortable giving, um, no, no donation is too small. And uh, I think that's important to keep in mind. So give us a call. 604-822-8648. This is The City. This is an hour dedicated to critical urban discussions, and uh, you heard from uh, a documentary that went on to be um, part of the National uh, Groundwire, which is um, a production, a public affairs and news production that's produced across the country from different community and campus stations. And uh, the documentary from this program that originally aired here on The City um, was was produced um, for that programming. So again, to give you a sense of the importance of uh, supporting this and we're not only producing content here but this is content that is uh, appearing in other places for example um, that that uh, that documentary so again give us a call 604-822-8648 
We're winding down the show. Um, we've given you a bit of a sample of uh, what, what you can find here on the program. And uh, we've got the Ballantines here in the background. They're playing the Fun Drive finale. Um, and this is uh, something that you most certainly want get, to get to. Um, and I'm going to give you the details on that. And we're winding down the show here, but give us a call, 604-822-8648. Uh, we've had some uh, great music on the program. We've had some uh, a, a bit of a taste of what you can find. It's certainly not uh, representative of everything that you can find on the program, uh, but it does give you a sense of, of what, you might, uh, what you might find um, and, uh, and, and why you should support this programming and why you, you, know, why you should support um, music programming and diversity of it, uh, diverse public affairs and, and spoken word programming. Um, and, and why it matters. So again, give us a call, 604-822-8648, um, 604-822-8648. Um, again, help us get over that $17,000 mark. And, uh, and now we're up to... We're up to $18,000 and $25. So thank you, Michael, for giving, uh, giving uh, I reckon, a substantial donation to get us over that mark. This is CATR 101.9 FM. And thanks again to Michael. Um, thanks for calling in, giving that donation. This is programming that uh, clearly matters to a lot of people. So give us a call um, and, and show us why you care and want to see CATR continue to be that alternative voice um, for Vancouver that provides uh, great music, diversity in music, uh, different perspectives, um, you know, critical public affairs programming, urban content, a whole a whole diversity of stuff. We're going to wind up the show now with the track um, from the Fun Drive finale. Um, this is a track from... Uh, from uh, we're gonna go for another track from the Ballantines. They're playing uh, the Fun Drive finale. Be sure to check that out. Um, and we've got uh, Flexor Head coming up next at six o'clock here on CATR. Here on CATR.ca. This is the city. I'm Andy Longhurst. We're gonna go out with the track from Black Magic uh, from the Ballantines. The track is Black Magic. Thanks for being with me. Have a great week. Yeah.